Hello. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And today we're going to talk about a fundamentally important subject that's unfortunately many times misunderstood, the grace of God. When we talk about God's grace, it's a subject that often either gets overemphasized or underemphasized. It's hard to find a good balance when we talk about God's grace. The confusion comes in about how far it extends, and especially how it relates to faith and obedience. There's some who seem to think of grace and speak only of grace, as if man has no responsibility in salvation in his relationship with God. On the other hand, there are others who very rarely, if ever, speak of grace and make a lot of man's responsibility, de-emphasizing or neglecting uh, the very fundamental, foundational, and critical aspect of God's grace. And so let's take a few moments and consider in Scripture what it has to say about God's grace. What is grace, and how has God provided it? What is grace's role in salvation, and how far does grace extend? So as we begin defining grace, defining grace can be tricky at times. It's the Greek word charis, and it has a shorthand definition of unmerited favor that gets used a lot. A more full definition is graciousness of manner or act, acceptable, benefit, or a gift. And that is what grace means in the whole form. So grace is giving something that is not deserved, and it's 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 being very kind in disposition. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 19, um, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, verse 9, um, Paul says that uh, the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So, grace has been given by God before the creation began. And it's important to realize this on the very biggest uh, stage, that all things are through God's grace in the grand scheme of things. After all, He created all things. He has created us, therefore, in Genesis chapter 1. He has given us life in this material creation, and that is indeed a benefit and a gift. We also see this in Acts 17, 24-28. We are to find grace in God and from God so that we might live, that we might be able to be strengthened to show others grace. And that's uh, a concept that uh, the Apostle Paul also affirms in 2 Corinthians 9 and, and verse 8, that God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So grace can abound so as to be a benefit to others. And the Hebrew author speaks about the same subject in Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 16 where he says let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need so this grace that God gives is, a, is, is continual it is sustaining it uh, empowers us to be of, of benefit to others in 1 Peter 4 and verse 10 Paul, Peter says that each person is to um, use the gifts God has given them to serve as good stewards of the manifold or varied grace of God. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that God has given different gifts to different people, and even in different measures. What we see in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, in the parable of the talents, the three uh, servants, or servants of the master who is, who is God, are all given different numbers of talents and have different expectations placed upon them. Uh, a message that often gets missed in our culture today where we often try to emphasize uh, equality, but forget that... Uh, even though we are equal in the sight of God as, as souls made in His image, that different people have different abilities. And likewise, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So, so grace is only each and every one of us received in Christ, when we are in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to, to give, uh, notice how he speaks to them, and beginning in verse 6. Uh, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he may could, could complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So the idea is that just as the Macedonians have been giving well, uh, the Corinthians should also act in this grace, in this gift, in this benevolence. Uh, and Paul explicitly identifies the example of Jesus as one who was rich before our sake became poor, and that was the grace, the gift that Jesus gave us. And so we see that, sure, God's grace is preeminent in Scripture, and, and most often we're going to get to the way it's used most often, but we see that it also can refer here to uh, the grace that people show to others, and that God uh, can pr continue to provide grace so that we can abound uh, in His kingdom. Uh, but when we talk about grace most often in the New Testament, it's not about anything that we have or, or are. But in fact, it's, a dem it's discussing the demonstration of God's grace that He has given us through the incarnation, life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and lordship of Jesus of Nazareth. We see this in Acts 15, 11, 20, 24, and Ephesians 5, Romans 5, 15 through 21, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 7, and 1 Peter 1 and verse 13, uh, very clearly, that the emphasis is always on God's rich blessings that He has poured out on us in Jesus. In Ephesians 1 and verse 7, just as one of the many passages that speak about this, uh, Paul says that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. So we have this, this grace uh, lavished upon us, the forgiveness of our sins. And so grace is absolutely a gift. It is an unmerited benefit. God has lavished that grace upon us in innumerable ways through the creation that we enjoy, the association and friendships we have in life, the particular personality and abilities we have, and most preeminently through Jesus. And that's what we'd like to spend most of our time, uh, rest of our time discussing today, is how God has given us grace in Jesus, why it was necessary, and what we're supposed to do about it. Uh, and we have this explained to us primarily in two passages, Ephesians 2 and Romans 4 through 6. Paul provides a great way of looking at grace uh, that we see echoes of throughout the rest of the New Testament. And so we begin Ephesians chapter 2. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So there in Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were in sin. We lived in sin. And a very important idea we also get in Romans 3, that since we've all sinned, we cannot be justified. We can't be made righteous through a standard of law. Because we all stand as transgressors. We all transgressed God's holy standard. And if we were going to say, well, God, God you know, I, I did all these good things, he's going to say, well, look, you did these bad things. What fixes those bad things? What atones for those bad things? Doing good things? No. That's not how a standard of law works. If you have transgressed the law in one point, as James 2 and verse 9 says, you've transgressed it all. And so Paul makes this great declaration, By works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for that we have all have sinned, in Romans 3, verse 20 and then 23. And that's what Paul is saying here in a very powerful, vivid way to remind us of how bad our sin was. That we were in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, by nature children of wrath. Uh, that we were destined for condemnation, and there's nothing we could have done about it to have, to have um, fixed that problem ourselves. And yet, as we continue in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, even though we were in that horrendous condition, and we were evil in so many ways, uh, and certainly not deserving of love in any any way that we humans would normally uh, provide it, God loved us and showed us grace in Jesus. And that's why he exclaims there, but by grace you've been saved. That if God did not have that uh, un, th- that disposition toward us to be kind to us even though we had done evil uh, there would be no hope of our salvation that's what Paul's really trying to get at there and in, in Romans 5 uh, Paul does a great job of explaining from verses 6 through 21 how that came to pass um, in verses 6 through 11 is a great declaration the very same thing he said in verses 4 through 7 Ephesians 2 that while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly continuing, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that we've been justified by his blood, much more thou shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So even there, the idea we were destined for condemnation, and through what Jesus did on our behalf, we no longer have to uh, look forward to that. Instead, we have been reconciled to God. And, And how that happened? Well, Paul talks about going all the way back to Adam. How uh, Adam sinned, and when Adam sinned, he brought sin and death into the world. That sin abounded after Adam. But just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men in verse 18, Paul is then able to say that one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. That Jesus, through his act of righteousness, through living and dying on the cross for our sins, was able to provide atonement for all the acts of disobedience which had taken place. And so this is possible so that we could be reconciled back to God in Christ. And this often gets used in, in a distorted try to show original sin, that we, we have all inherited sin from Adam, when Paul has said no such thing. That instead that we have just... Um, 
born into a climate of sin and that we all will ultimately sin if we reach that level of consciousness and continue to commit sin until we find uh, reconciliation in Christ. Uh, but what he's trying to show here is that actually magnify the what the reconciliation. Paul is saying less about Adam than he is about Christ here. And that gets missed. So many people want to focus on what, God, what Paul says about Adam. No, he's trying to say what happened in Christ. That what in Christ, it's possible that his one act of death was able to overcome all of the consequences of the sin that had gone before, just like that one act of disobedience was able to lead to all these terrible consequences for later generations. And so that's a very important thing that gets missed in, in Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 5 that we do well to keep in mind. And so in Ephesians, going back to Ephesians, um, in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, for, prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so, again, he's emphasizing that we're saved by grace through faith. That without grace, we could not be reconciled back to God. Uh, but the off reconciliation through that grace must be trusted and accepted in order to be effective. And that's why we have in Romans 4 and 5, after, excuse me, Paul uh, makes a declaration about everyone being in sin and the justification that comes through faith. Uh, he makes it clear in Romans 4 that God's grace is not earned through works. That Abraham received grace, and he trusted in God, and was declared righteous. He did not receive it through being circumcised or through the law of Moses. And that's why God's grace is not meted out through the law of Moses, as if we all have to become Jews before we can follow Jesus, uh, but is richly provided to those who entrust themselves to the Lord and receive reconciliation and peace. And, and so that's why he will, he will in Romans 6, he, he even kind of expects this kind of rebuttal when he talks about the fact that the law came to increase trespass, that uh, where sin abounded, grace would abound all the more, uh, so that uh, grace might reign in righteousness through Jesus Christ. And so somebody might take a very carnal view and they say, well, if sin abounded and grace abounded all the more, then if we keep sinning and we sin more, we get more grace, right? That we to continue in sin that grace may abound in Romans 6 and verse 1. Um, but, notice what he says, How? No, by no means, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So, a Christian is not justified in continually sinning in order to get more grace. Because they consider themselves as dead to sin in Christ Jesus, as he will explain in verses uh, 5 through uh, 13 especially. Because he's saying, Jesus died a death to die no more when he was raised from the dead. He died once, he rose again, death has no power over him. And that's how we're to reckon ourselves in terms of sin. That sin and death have no power over us anymore because we are in Christ, and therefore we should not be acting the way we were when we were in sin. Furthermore, we have this statement in Romans 6 and verse 14, that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And again, to this day, on all sides of, of arguments about faith and works, we have the idea, this question asks, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And some people have taken the idea of under grace is under license. That because God has given us grace that, you know, we're saved no matter what and we're free to do as, as we please and we'll still be saved. That's not what's in the text. In fact, it's astonishing what, how Paul defines what it means to be under grace. 
very after asking that question and saying, by no means, in verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So what he's saying here is, what does it mean to be under grace? It means since you've been set free from sin... You submit from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. You become a slave of righteousness. So to become under grace does not mean in the Bible that you go do whatever you want or that you've been released to be some kind of a, a freedom as Americans understand it. No. What Paul is saying is, sure, you're set free from sin to become a slave of righteousness. That being under grace means to willfully and freely serve the Lord Jesus. That's what you're being set free to do. So Paul finds no contradiction here between being obedient and being under grace. In fact, he considers the two to be of necessity attached to one another. You can't really follow the Lord Jesus and serve him if you aren't a recipient of his grace, the grace that God has shown through him. Uh, likewise, if you're living like you've received no grace, then you've manifestly not received any grace. And so, in fact, grace and obedience go quite well together. So God's grace displayed in Jesus is foundational and fundamental for salvation. Without it, you can't have any atonement. There's no forgiveness. There's no justification. There's no reconciliation. There's no sanctification. And there therefore cannot be any salvation. Because without what Jesus is doing what he did for us, we are still lost in our sins. We are children of wrath. And on the day of judgment, we're condemned justly. So God's grace is exceedingly wonderful. And it's poured out richly. And we should never try to deny that or suggest otherwise. Even in the face of extremists, we must always be powerful, powerfully affirm. Excuse me, we must powerfully affirm uh, the richness of God's grace and our utter dependence upon it. However, this idea of grace has been taken by perhaps well many people to extremes and have come out with some doctrines that are inconsistent with what God has revealed. Uh, for instance, grace alone cannot save. As, as it's been said, without God's grace in Christ, no one can be saved. We would not exist or have any hope in the world if it weren't for the grace of God. And so this is not a denial of the importance of grace. It just means that running to an extreme and saying we're saved by grace only is a distortion of what has been said. Because if we are going to say that grace alone can save, it means that God is going to impose salvation on people who have not asked to receive it. He's going to impose it upon people who have rejected it and have refused it. Or we, there is a whole different view of God that he's already predetermined all of these things, and that is inconsistent as well with the God of Scripture. Salvation and reconciliation are made possible through grace, and they're offered freely to everyone in Jesus. We see in 1 Timothy 2, 4, because God wants all to be saved. And in Romans 5, 6, 11, God, we have seen how this happens. But it's never forced on anyone who would reject it. Love does not seek its own, in 1 Corinthians 13, 5. And we know in 1 John 4 that God is love. So God's not going to force himself on people. And so grace is offered freely. Anyone can take advantage of it. Anyone can be saved by it. But it has to be accepted. It has to be welcomed. And that ultimately, just as responsibility for condemnation falls upon the individual, so does the responsibility of freely accepting the grace of God that has been offered to them. 
this is how we can know that those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus will suffer ter- eternal torment away from his presence, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. And that those who do not do the will of the Father in heaven will not re- enter the kingdom in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Because God's grace in Christ is only effective for those who are accepted through faith and his necessary obedience. As we see here in Ephesians 2, but also in James chapter 1, 14 through 26, and James 2, 14 through 26, where James talks about the need for uh, works, that faith without works is dead. Likewise, in Galatians 5 and verse 4, Paul explains that one can fall from grace. Because remember, grace is only effective when believers put their full trust in God and Christ. And there are these Christians of Galatia who are being seduced to observe the law of Moses. And they were Gentiles upon whom the law was never imposed. And so Paul warns them that if they continue in that path, they would fall from the grace of God. Because at that point, they're not putting their trust in Jesus anymore. They're putting their trust in a law system that ultimately could not save. And so therefore, anybody who no longer puts their trust in God, in Christ, but they turn to another religious view, or a secular view, or some kind of idol, they've also fallen from grace and will suffer the consequences. As we see in 2 Peter 2, 20-22. There, Peter's talking about false teachers. But what have false teachers done? False teachers have gone back to some kind of worldly element, that they've been freed from the worldly entanglements, as Peter says, but are then, again, overcome by it. And that it's like a, a sow after washing returns to the mire. And there are consequences for doing that. And they're not going to be automatically redeemed because at one point in their lives, they followed God and put their trust in Him. Just like in Ezekiel 18, there's a man who may live righteously all his life, but if he turns to sin and dies in it, he will suffer the consequences. And as we've said once before, many times before, we'll say it again, grace is not licensed to sin. As we saw there in Romans 5, Paul declared boldly that where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. And there is that distortion, the idea that if there is more grace needed to cover more sin, that we'd get more grace if we sin more, in Romans 6.1. And he sharply denounces that view, because we're to die to sin. Jude puts it so well, unfortunately, in Jude 1 and in verse 4, when he says that there are many who... who crept in uh, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They want to pervert or distort the grace of our God into sensuality. They want to take God's gifts and turn them into license for sexual sin and greed and all kinds of other sorts of evil. And we see exactly what happened to Israel. Um, also, when they became complacent in their relationship with God and they felt entitled to do whatever they wanted to do. So this, this happens in so many ways. Some people uh, try to distort the gospel and say, hey, this allows me, because uh, it's not explicitly condemned or, or something of the sort, to, to engage in some kind of behavior that is clearly contrary to the spirit of the gospel. Or, like with Israel where people feel, well, I'm a Christian, God loves me, Jesus loves me, so even if I go and commit this sin or that sin, God will still love me and I'll still be okay. And that, both of those mentalities are very much condemned in Scripture. Because God's gift of salvation in Christ does not give us the right to sin or feel immune from sin's consequences. Uh, that's why John will go on to say in 1 John chapter 3 that those who continue to practice in sin are of the evil one. And it's those who do righteousness that are of God. And, and we may know who is still who is of Satan and of Christ. Those who are of Satan do evil. 
persist in doing evil, and those who are in Christ uh, have turned away from sin and no longer participate in sin. And there's this very sharp message the Hebrew author provides us, beginning in verse 26 of chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so that's a serious statement. Who has profaned, spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, has outraged the Spirit of grace. Even though God gives grace freely, you can cause outrage in the Spirit of grace. And that's when you continue to to sin willfully, even though you know what the way is that, that you should go. And so God's grace is wonderful, but it's not without limits. And we need to keep that in mind. Not because somehow that means God is weak, but it means that God remains holy and just and love. And He blesses us with grace. But we must respect that God is not only a God of grace, but that there are standards, and that we must do what we can to uh, follow after them. So in the end, we must never forget that all that we are and have is by the grace of God. That grace is God's gift, His unmerited favor. And He has given us life that we do not deserve and could never repay Him for. We have this material creation that we enjoy and all the wonderful blessings that come with it. But God's grace is preeminently manifest through Jesus and the reconciliation offered in His blood. We're never going to deserve that grace, but we are to be thankful that He has proven so willing to offer it. And that God has poured out many of his gifts freely to all, as Jesus makes clear in Matthew 5.45, he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But grace alone will not lead to reconciliation with God. God offers salvation and reconciliation freely in Jesus, but we have to accept it in faith. And that has to be an obedient faith. To be under grace is to obey God from the heart, based on the gospel, and be a slave of righteousness, as Paul makes clear in Romans 6. And we must remember that grace and the salvation it allows is a privilege. It is not a right, and it is not an entitlement. We'll never earn it or deserve it, and if we turn away from God, we reject it as well. That grace is never going to excuse or justify sin, that we need to in fact die to sin through God's grace in Christ. And so let us always be thankful to God that He has displayed such wonderful grace to us in Jesus Christ, and that we may accept the offer of His grace through obedient faith to the Lord, to His glory and honor for all time. We're again so glad you spent this time with us. We hope that you've been encouraged by this understanding of grace. And we hope that you recognize how how important grace is in your life and that without God's grace, uh, you would not even exist. And to be thankful for it and to turn and follow Him. If we can help you in any way, maybe you'd like to talk more about grace, talk about the way that it gets abused or or distorted. Uh, Maybe you want to talk about some other subject about the faith. Uh, maybe you want to learn more about how to be a Christian, or maybe you're just going through difficulties and you need to talk to somebody or make a prayer request. If there's any way I can help you, please let me do so. Please contact me through my website, deverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or please feel free to check out the Venice Church of Christ online. We're at Christ.org. We're also on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Meetup, Google+, YouTube, 
Twitter, mostly at Venice Church or Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.